Let me tell you something today that you probably don't know about me. As a kid, I was very much into wrestling. Or, or, or what you would describe as wrestling, like WCW, WWF wrestling. I loved Hulk Hogan and, and then Sting. I mean, I remember I got pictures when I was in fourth grade with the, with the face mask all painted up and everything else. And then guys like Bill Goldberg just spearing dudes on stage and jackknife powerbombing people. And, and I don't know if any of this is reigning true for any of you, but there came this moment in my life where I had this revelation and I realized that what I was actually watching and what I was so consumed with and what I would, you know, dive bomb off the top bunk of my bed and elbow drop Macho Man Randy Savage style on the pillows, I realized it was all fake and it wasn't real. And maybe if you're watching this online, you've had some of those same things. And maybe like, maybe that was newsflash, spoiler alert, wrestling is fake. Um, but I'd love to know online. I'm going to go back and read some of these comments. Um, who was your favorite wrestler? Like favorite wrestler, WCW, WWF. And if you're watching this and you're like, ooh, gross. Like, I don't know. what you, you, If you want to feel involved or like in with it, you just put in your favorite Disney princess. I don't know whatever you want to put in there. But, but here's the deal. There comes a time in every wrestling fan's life where they realize, hey, uh, this is fake. And today what I want to talk about is a different kind of wrestling, but in the same way that people realize that WCW and WWF or WOE, whatever, is fake, this is oftentimes the type of wrestling that people say, hey, that's fake too. And it's something that we kind of shrug off, but what I want to show you today is that there is real wrestling going on right now. Wrestling going on in, in not a physical realm. You know, there is some physical stuff going on. There's definitely tension in our country. There's tension in our cities and in our society. But what I want you to understand, what we're going to dive into today, is that there is a bigger, more forceful, more powerful, yet subtle wrestling that's happening right here and right now. I'm going to pray for us. A big, long, heavy prayer. And then we're going to dive into God's word for us today. You ready? Let's pray together and dive in. Jesus, help us see you for who you really are in your name. Amen. Come with me. Come with me. All right. Let me show you this. When I want to talk about wrestling, here, here, here's what I mean in saying that we are wrestling with things that are real. We are wrestling against things that are unseen. Paul was talking about this wrestling that's going on in the midst of our lives in Ephesians as he was trying to warn a church that were kind of susceptible like we are to saying, ah, yeah, you know, ah, we're not really fighting against anything. We're just fighting against, you know, this stuff and we're fighting against bad countries and, you know, whatever. But he said in Ephesians 6, 2, this is leaning into this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That means that my neighbor is not my enemy. I don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But he said, but against rulers, against Authorities against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, what Paul is trying to help them understand, I want to try to help you understand, is that there is more going on than meets the eye. That the things that we see on the news, the things that we see in the paper, the things that we see going on in our cities and around us, they're terrible, they're horrible. But here's the thing that we can know, and sometimes, especially now, those things are revealing the things that have been going on behind the scenes. That there are spiritual dark forces at, at, at risk in our world. And for those of you watching this, maybe you'd be like, hey, I believe there is good in this world. And I believe that good is real. And oftentimes we'll say, yes, I believe there is good. And, and God is a source of good. But at the same sense, if God is good and God is the true source of good in this world, then that means if that's a possibility, then there also has to be a possibility for evil and darkness. 
And what I want to walk us through in the story we're going to dive into today is the reality that there is a battle that's being waged. Now, I don't want to, to preach any sort of false doctrine. The battle of good and evil is not a level playing field. It is not, you know, two equal opportunities fighting against each other. That's not this battle. But what I want to walk you through is reality that if you could put on spiritual glasses and you could see the spiritual warfare that's going on around you in this moment, around your kids in this moment, around your family in this moment, around us as a church in this city as a moment, it would literally scare us to death because of how much is going on right now. We're going to dive into a story where we see this tension and this wrestling, this spiritual wrestling in a man happening firsthand. If you got a Bible, I'd encourage you to dive in. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to start in Mark chapter 5. All right, Mark chapter 5. Now, this was a week that I didn't see coming. This week has been an unforeseen circumstance for me. And so as we went through this series called Unforeseen Circumstances, I really wanted to, to tie the story I'm going to dive into today to the story where we talked about Jesus calming the storm. Because really, they go hand in hand. So if you remember week one of this series, this message here really ties hand in hand to this. Because what you see is Jesus getting in the boat. And he says, hey guys, let's go over to the other side. As they're crossing over to go to the other side, they come up on this huge, death-scaring storm. And Jesus is taking a nap on a pillow and just do, doing Jesus stuff. They wake Jesus up. They say, don't you care? We're about to die. Jesus wakes up. He calms the storm. And all the disciples in the boat are going... Who is this man? The writer of the gospel actually goes to link to explain that the disciples in the boat are more scared of Jesus than they were scared for their lives because of the storm. Because it's, sometimes it's more terrifying to have God in the boat with you than to have a storm that can knock you out of the boat. And so we're now seeing, this is kind of scene two of that story, when they wash up on the shore as they make it through the storm. Let's read it together. Mark chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Okay, we're going to break this down. We're going to kind of walk through this piece by piece. Because again, context is king. You've got to understand what is really going on here to understand how it will be helpful for you, what it really meant to the people reading it, and what it can really mean and how it can really change your life. First of all, we've got to know where they landed. It says they landed in the country of the Gerasenes. So again, they're taking this big boat ride from the top of the Sea of Galilee up in Jerusalem all the way down into this region. Now here's the thing that people would have known about this region where they landed. This country where they're landing, this city where they're landing, would have been thought of as going to like the pagan party. This is like we're going across the Sea of Galilee to Las Vegas. This is we're going to this place where... It was nice, and it was white collar, and we had things taken care of, and it was buttoned up up here in Jerusalem, and everybody was a Jew, and everybody was the same religion as us. They had the same values and morals as us. But when they get across, they enter into a society and a city where nobody believes what they believe. Nobody has the faith that they have. People believe in stuff, and they do these things, but, man, it is wilding out of control in these places, and they knew that. Oftentimes what authors would say is that when Jesus was telling the story of the prodigal son and he said that the younger son went into the far-off country, that that imagery would have conjured up in the people listening to the story originally. They would have thought of this region of the Gerasenes, 
They say that's when, when people want to escape from mom and daddy's religion, they sell out and they go to the region of Gerasenes and they get drunk and they sex, drugs, rock and roll life in that region. And so these little Jewish boys on the boat are like, oh man, this is where we're headed. And so they get off the shore and, and look what it says. It says immediately. So these guys just got out of a storm and, and they get off the boat and immediately they're confronted from the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So picture this. I mean, you get there, you're washed out, you just have this crazy thing. The disciples are still in this moment terrified of Jesus. They just got through a storm that they were terrified for their life of. And then this man shows up on the shore. And we see kind of how this is described here. Look at how they describe him in Mark 5, 3 and 4. This man shows up and it says, He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He didn't have tools. His arms were his tools. And he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. This account of this, what's called the Gerasene demoniac, is actually contained in the three subnautic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And all of them give some different details. Luke actually adds to the story, his, his own little detail here that's maybe good for us to know, is that this man was also naked. And he shows up. I mean, again, don't just read your Bible. See, hear, and smell your Bible. These guys get off the boat. They land on the shore. They see some graves and some tombs up there. And then they see this man. Imagine this man completely naked. Or if you're from Ola or Jackson, he is naked coming down to them, likely screaming and yelling, hulked out, blood flowing off of his body from how he's been cutting himself with rocks and stones. And this is their welcome party. Let's look what happens next. It says in verse 5, And night and day among the tombs and in the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, Listen, guys, I know there's some shock and awe to a story like this. And I know some of you, like I know at risk of diving into a story like this on a day like this, we run the risk of, of, of hearing this story and going, oh, you know what? Like, sometimes I have bad days and I don't have all my stuff figured out, but I ain't that bad. Like, I'm not cutting myself. I'm not, you know, running through graveyards naked. Like, I'm not doing those things. And so it can be easy to kind of check out on the story and say, well, I can't relate. But how many of you have maybe found yourself going to dead places? Maybe going to things that are dead things and looking for them to bring you life. How many of you have maybe gone to a dead relationship to try to resurrect it? How many of you have gone onto Facebook and looked up the name of that high school fling and just thought, oh, well, I just wonder what it is they're doing? See, I think... While we may not have a legion of demons possessing us, I think we have a little bit of legion. And I'm saying that you're possessed, but as I read this story, I think I can relate more than I used to in this. Not saying that I have demonic uh, possession happening in my life, but I do think there are evil forces that are oppressing us even right now. And while you may not have been bound in shackles, I believe that there are many things that are binding us. Many of us are bound to uncontrolled eating. We are bound to uncontrolled spending. We, we are bound to uncontrolled addictions and habits. And, and there are things right now for you watching this that have you bound. And hopefully, you're not running naked through graveyards. But here's what I know. All of us 
we fear the shame that would come if we were actually exposed for being the less than perfect person that we pretend to be. And so while you may not feel like you're exactly like this guy, and praise God, you are not exactly like this guy, we can relate to this guy because we have felt shame, we have felt bondage, and we have felt, even like he did, self-harm. And I want you to see this picture that's going on in this man. This man is a picture of what Satan wants you to look like. Now, again, in our society, he works a little bit different. I believe he's shifted and changed some of his ways. Uh, We don't hear a whole lot of stuff about demonic oppression and demonic possession in our society. It's more subtle. It's gone underground. You don't hear a lot of stuff about demons. And the reason I don't feel like we hear so much stuff about demons is because we have these things called devices. And they become our vices. They become our demons. They become the things that control us and, and allow us to do the things that we're doing. And I'm not going to bash devices because I know many of you are watching this on a device. And those things can be redeemed and used for good. But here's the deal. The ways in which the enemy is wrestling for your heart, soul, mind, and attention. They have shifted and changed over the years as we have shifted and changed as a society over the years. And what you've got to know is right now, in your living room, wherever you're watching this, There's a war going on for your heart between good and evil. And that's what we see happening in this moment with him. We see him crying out. And what's happening here, you got to know, as he's, as he's coming off, you know how um, sound travels better over water. So as these guys are actually you know, getting ready to wash up on the shores there, they are likely hearing the screams from the shore as he's crying out from the tombs that he was living inside of. And we see him cutting himself, inflicting harm on itself. And see, that's how the enemy works. See, the enemy rarely will he deliberately inflict something on you. I think God oftentimes, and we see this in the book of Job, God said, hey, you can mess with Job, but you can't touch Job. I believe that, that we are under God's divine protection and providence, and, and, and there are things that the enemy will not be able to do to our physical bodies, but the enemy is crafty, and he will walk ways around that, and he will get you, if he cannot hurt you, if he cannot cut you, he will get you to hurt yourself, and he will get you to cut yourself. And that's how he loves to work. And we see that this is how he is working in this man. Now, you can see this and you go, okay, well, like, how in the world, like, where do you get here? Like, am I, is this, could this happen to me? Like, I, this is terrifying. Like, I know I'm struggling with some stuff, but like, you know, I have potential to wake up one day and just like, boom, like this is, I'm up in the graveyard naked screaming and cutting myself and bounding my chains. Like, is this, is this something that can happen? Here's the deal I want you to know. This man did not get this way overnight. In the same way that the person that you see begging for money on the side of the street did not get there overnight. It's the same way as the person who's addicted to methamphetamine that's in your family did not get there overnight. We don't get to these places where we are bound and self-inflicting harm on ourselves overnight. We get to those places when we have a few too many conversations, usually in our own minds, that go one more time. Just one more time. Just one more time. Just, 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 just one more time. One more time won't hurt anything. But here's the deal. What one more time does is one more time feeds and gives energy and life to that thing that is actually killing you. That's the reason I believe this man continued to get stronger and stronger because he had continued to feed and feed and allow his life to convey more and more to the background and this legion of enemy demons that had been possessing him to go more and more to the forefront of his life. 
And again, I believe this is an image of what Satan's goal ultimately is for you. Now again, it will likely here in America, in, in, our, in our a little bit more buttoned up, a little bit better hiding thing society, it will likely not look like this man did on the outside. Nobody's going to show up at your work or come to your neighborhood and see this. But let me ask you a really scary question that I had to ask myself. How often do I look like this on the inside? Like when I have those moments when I'm at my worst, when my thoughts run rampant, when, when I'm ready to, to give up, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm frustrated and afraid, how, how many times do we encounter people who are like this on the inside? And see, I think that's where the enemy is working and shifting and working and, and doing things in our society now is he knows that, hey, I would rather get the masses to look like this man on the inside than have one man look like this around him. Because they would ostracize, they'd kick that guy out, they'd put him in a sane asylum. But if I can secretly and subtly have millions of people feeling like this man looks on the inside, what good can I do for the kingdom of darkness? The story goes on. We finally see it begin to start to turn towards something positive. In Mark chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. So this man, he comes, is the strongest, you know, unable to be bound by anything. It says in verse 6, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. First of all, I want you to you pick up the adjectives. Again, don't just read your Bible, see your Bible. This is a man... Fully nude, bleeding, disgusting, and who no one can bind, running full speed at Jesus, the person who everybody in the town is terrified, nobody was stronger than. He runs and he cowers like a dog with his tail between his legs before Christ. And listen to what is said. What have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God. I want you to so circle that, underline that word. Son of the Most High God. This, this phrase, Son of the Most High God, it was actually this epithet that was used in referring to other gods in the region. It's kind of like their way of saying um, the goat. You know, G-O-A-T, the greatest of all time. You hear people say, well, Tom Brady's a goat, or, you know, Freddie Freeman's a goat, or Mike Trout's a goat. We, we hear people, Michael Jordan's a goat, yes, and he actually is. We hear people refer to things like that. And this was their epitaph way of saying, Jesus, you are the son of the most high God. To say there is no other God that is higher than you. Now I want you to understand something here. The demons have excellent doctrine. They know exactly who Jesus is. They know that there is no other God that is higher than him. And listen, I want you not to miss this. What was the question the disciples ended their story in the boat with? What did they ask? They go, who is this man? The disciples have no idea who he is. He shows up on shore, and immediately demons know exactly who he is. Because there's a spiritual warfare going on. And they say, hey, Jesus, you're the, you're the son of the most high God. Because they realize and they understand who he truly is. And then he says, uh, 
this legion of demons as it's, as it's speaking through this man. It says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And this word adjure, again, that's not something we, we use a whole lot in our modern vernacular. But it's their way of saying this. I swear to God, or in the name of God, do not torment me. Which is the demons were almost using like this, this, this uh, backwards trick to say, we're kind of kind of exercising Jesus, or we're doing an exorcism on you, saying, in the name of God, do not send us away. And Jesus just shuts all this down in verses 8 and 10. He says, for he was saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus shuts it all down, and he asks him, what is your name? And as this, this demonic force is speaking out of this man who is taking advantage of, he replied, my name is Legion, which, if that doesn't make the hair on your neck stand up, it's this terrifying moment. I mean, imagine, I mean, we've seen some of the, like, I don't think those things are actually very far off from what is happening on the shore in this city. My name is Legion, for we are many. Now listen, hey, hey, this, this again, this, this strong, powerful demon that everybody was terrified, then and in, in the presence of Jesus, the Most High God says, and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. I want to pick up a few things in this little passage of 8 to 10. First of all, he said, what is your name? See, Jesus, he understood and he knew what was going on in these spiritual dark forces. Jesus is a heavenly being. He knows every single heavenly being that was ever created. He understands them. He knows their by names. He knows. He's got the roster of the fallen angels memorized. He knows who's on their team because he is strategically interceding on our behalf. He knows the one who wants to go after you the most by name. I don't know if you've ever thought about that or not, but he is that strategic in how he is protecting you. Is that he knows exactly, by name, the spiritual forces that are against you. And this word legion, when he says my name is legion, is I think drawing this reference to what would have been notified as a Roman legion of our a Roman part of the army. And that would have been a legion of soldiers was anywhere between 2,000 and 6,000. And so he's saying we are many, and that's not necessarily saying specifically there are 6,000 or 2,000 demons inside of this guy. But the point here is there are a multitude of demons that are inside of this man. And this multitude of demons are cowering under the name of Christ. It says, don't send us out of the country. Don't send us, well, you know, what that kind of means is, is, don't send us out of this region. And again, I talked about this region, how it was a place that was spiritually oppressed. You know, Jesus was, was coming from the area of Jerusalem where, where most of the people there were Jewish believers. There were some Samaritans there, but most of the people there were, were Jewish believers. And he comes to this region where, where it's Roman paganism, worshiping a multitude of gods. And so these demons are, are running rampant. Because no one is worshiping Yahweh. Nobody is worshiping God. He's saying, we like it here. But what they realize is they're in the presence of something stronger than they are. The demons and the devil cannot grasp why God loves you like he does love you. And so when Jesus shows up in this region, I want you to know this is why they are freaking out. Because when Jesus shows up on the scene, they've known him from the, from the beginning of time, since, since, since they've been in eternal beings. They see Jesus show up on the scene, and they know his heart, not just what he can do. They know his heart is for you and me, and they know that Jesus' heart is for this man that they have possessed. And again, I want you to understand the bigger meta-narrative of what's going on in this cosmic war between good and evil. 
See, the thing that Satan and all of his demonic forces cannot and refuses to understand about God and his love is that he would love me and he would love you. Because the, the, the demonic forces, at one point in time, they were in heaven, they were with God. And because they didn't understand God's love for us and they thought that they should have it their way and that they should be the ones who are worshiping, they are the heavenly beings. And how dare a God create this place in the garden and go down and walk with those created beings? They rebelled and they fell, and God banished this, them from his kingdom. And what I want you to realize is you quite literally became the hill on which God was willing to die on. And so these demons know, because it's the reason that they are no longer still in the heavenly realm, they know that Jesus, God in flesh, loves and deeply, intimately cares for this man. They don't understand it. They don't know how it could happen, but they know that's what he does. And so they know that their time is up. In verse 11, it says, Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. And so he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out of him and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, you may hear this or read this as we're talking through this and go, Man, what does Jesus have against pigs? Like, what's going on? First of all, understand here, uh, Jesus did not drown the pigs. Uh, the demons went into the pigs, and the pigs went where the pigs went, and they, and they went into the water. And, and while I, did, I can't give you a for sure 100% exact answer as to why they asked to go into the pigs or why Jesus allowed them to go into the pigs, I, I will give you some speculation. And scholars have gone back and forth over all things like this. But here's what I think. If you've put yourself in, in the mindset of how demonic and, and dark forces work, if the demons' thought process was going somewhere, I think is this is how it was going. I think they understood that they knew they were, gonna get in, they were having to get out of this man. And so, knowing that they had to get out of this man, they also knew that more important than just get out of this man is they had to get out from anywhere where Jesus was. And so, more important than leaving the man was getting Jesus to leave this region that they had created a stronghold on. And so what they do is they... I believe, choose to ask Jesus to allow them to go into the very thing that the people in this region value most. The thing that the people in this region valued most was pigs, because pigs equaled profit. The unforeseen circumstance here that we're going to learn about is, is there was this bacon shortage that was caused because of Jesus showing up and healing this man. And I believe the thing that you've got to understand about how God works and how the enemy works is the enemy loves to attack the things that we value more than Jesus. See, he knows that for you and for I, we all have things that we value, right? We, we have things that we value. And now, again, don't hear what I'm not saying. Satan cannot hear your thoughts. He, he's not in your mind just controlling. And listen, he doesn't need to hear your thoughts because he can see your actions. He sees where you spend time. He sees what you purchase. 
He hears the things you say. He sees what you look at online. And so Satan doesn't have to read your mind to discern what you value. All he has to do is follow you around for a week, maybe even a day. And he goes, okay, I got you figured out. He's been doing this for thousands of years. He can look at what we do and he can determine what we value. And if he finds one of us and he looks at our lives and he he does his statistical measurements and he says, they don't actually value Jesus the most, then what he will oftentimes do is he will attack that very thing that we value most to keep us from valuing Jesus and our relationship with him at all. Whatever he can do to attack that would drive a wedge between us and Jesus is what he shoots after to do. And so he knew if he could attack these pigs, what these people valued more, more than even this man, then they would say, Jesus, you got to go. You got to get out of here. And this is exactly what we see happen time and time again, even in our own lives. See, Satan will attack your finances. He'll he'll attack money. If you value money more than anything else and what you can do with money more than anything else, Satan will attack it because he knows if I can get them to worry and and, and angst and I can get them frustrated, if I can get them working two jobs, they'll quit going to church on Sunday. If I can make things tight, they'll stop tithing. They'll stop experiencing the joy of what it means to be a generous person. They'll stop all those things and their relationship with Jesus will be messed up because he said, where your heart is, there your treasure is. If I can get their heart on real treasure, they'll miss out on the treasure that can only be found in Christ. He's crafty. I want you to see what happened from there because that's exactly what we see happen is there's this wedge created between the relationship that these people in this town could have had with Jesus because of where enemy attacks them. Look at verse 14 and 15. It says, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw this demon-possessed man, the one who had been had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. They were terrified. So what you need to know here is both of these stories, the story of the storm and this story here, both of them end in people being terrified. In one sense, they're terrified of who Jesus is. In the other sense, they're terrified of who Jesus is because of what they saw him do. The story goes on in verse 16 and 17. It says that those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. My question to you today is what are your pigs? What is it for you that is that one thing that if you lost that one thing, you would also want to lose Jesus? What's that one thing that if it was gone, you would maybe even want Jesus to be gone? What is that thing that you value most? And maybe it's not a thing. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a relationship. What is it that is your pig? That thing standing in the way of you having the deep, intimate relationship with Jesus that the enemies, the dark forces, are terrified that you would begin to have? you got to answer that question. The story goes on. In 18 and 19, we see the attention turned to this man. It says, as he was getting in the boat, he is Jesus. As he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him, begged Jesus, that he might be with him. So this guy is like, listen... Jesus, I got to go with you, man. Like, I can't hang out with these people. Like, they've seen me naked and bleeding and terrified. Like, man, I could, like, this is, a, this is a bad, bad PR situation here, Jesus. And, like, I need a fresh start with you. I, me and you and these guys and everything else, I, I need to get out of here. But listen what happens. And he did not permit him, verse 19. He did not permit him, but said to him, go home. Go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. 
and how he has shown mercy on you. In verse 20, it says, And he went, and he began to proclaim to the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. See, guys, what we see here in this story, as we see and look at this man's changed life, is a case study in what true discipleship looks like at its onset and actually continues through to its fruition. Now, you got to understand things. The demons and the formerly demon-possessed man, they both had excellent doctrine at this point. They both understand Jesus is Lord. They both understand who he is. But there's a difference between being a, a demon and having good doctrine and being a disciple who has good doctrine. And I want to walk you through as we wrap up today what we see happening in this man. First of all, you see it in the, in the scripture um, and, and in the gospel of Luke and here when it talks about he is in his right mind. It actually talks about he, he, is, he is healed. The, the Greek translation of that word healed is this word S-O-Z-O, sozo. And it, it also is translated as the word saved. So what I believe Mark is more so getting after here is this man is not just like, hey, I'm good. Like I got clean clothes on and I'm, I'm not naked anymore. No, no, I got some band-aids and I'm cleaned up. I believe Mark is actually saying this man is saved. You don't get 2,000 plus demons cast out of you and then start sitting crisscross applesauce at Jesus' feet and not actually be saved. He's saying he's saved. Now, I want you to, to miss something, or not miss something, that is, is so critical in this story that many people don't make this connection. And, and you're going to see this today in a way that I believe will help you see the story in a new light that, that you haven't seen before. See, Mark is writing to a crowd. In the Bible, again, the Bible is not just a collection of verses and chapters. It's meant to be taken as a whole thing. And when you understand the whole context of Mark, what we see here in the story of the garrison demoniac is we see on full display this thing called the Great Exchange. Because if you go and you look at how Mark describes this man as being bloody, of being bound in shackles, of, of going to the tombs as crying out. And then you go and you go to the end of Mark and you look at Jesus as he's getting ready to be crucified. What you see is that the same way that Mark describes this demoniac is the same way he describes Jesus. As he says, he was bloody. He was bound. He was naked. I know the, the visions and the pictures that you have of Jesus on the cross. He always has some loincloth off, but I hate to break it to you. The Romans didn't do that. They forcefully and intentionally wanted crucifixion to be the most humiliating thing publicly as possible. And there is no records in all the annals of history of anyone ever being crucified with a loincloth on. He is naked and humiliated, screaming out on a cross. And then they take him to the place of the tombs. And he's with the dead. And I want you to see here that this is where you enter into the story. That when you look at the garrison demoniac, you understand that Christ became what he was to the uttermost. That he was bound in a way and he did not break the shackles. That the evil that was upon him did not have some animal to escape into. That he took all of that evil onto himself on the cross. So that you, like this man could be saved. And while he was also saved, one of the things we see there post-salvation is this man is sitting at the feet of Jesus, which all throughout early church history was this image of the posture of what discipleship looked like, of sitting, literally, crisscross applesauce at the feet of Jesus. Saying, Jesus, teach 
Pour into me. Help me understand what it means to be a follower. I need to know you. From here, we see that this man who longed to go with Jesus, we see Jesus command him to stay. And I think this is another one of the attributes of what a true disciple is, is this man is staying. So, so he is saved, he is sitting, but he is also staying. Jesus says, listen, I'm not going to change your circumstance. I'm going to change you from the inside. I'm going to do something new inside of you, and I'm going to send you back to an old place to do something new because I've done something new in and through you. Now, listen, guys, I know, like, going and doing new things, that's, that's a whole lot sexier than going back into old places. We all want, we want a new job. We want a new diet. We want to move to a new state. We want to go to a new church. We want to do all sorts of new things. But sometimes what God calls a true disciple to do is saying, I need you to stay. I need you to have, develop some grit, some tenacity. I put you in that place for a reason. I am God with you there, and I'm going to use you right where you are. But he doesn't just become a disciple and sit at Jesus' feet. He goes, and he stays where he's at, and he goes back to Decapolis, and he opens his mouth. And he begins to say things, to preach things, to not just be a guy who says, well, okay, Jesus saved me. Now I'm going to go and just kind of play it safe. You know, everybody in this town, they know, like, I was kind of a weirdo, and I kind of scared the kids, and nobody wanted to be around me. And so he says, I know I'm going to have to get over some of my shame. I know I'm going to have to get some over some of my past. But what's been done for me is enough for that. That I can say, I don't care what I used to be. I used to be possessed by demons. I used to have uh, all this baggage. I used to be the town pariah that no one wanted to be around. But then Jesus stepped in to my life. I think for us, we've got to go, what are you saying about what Jesus has done? What are you, how, how are you opening your mouth? It says he began to proclaim to the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. How much are you talking about what Jesus has done for you? One of the things that I know is I've been in ministry for a little while and I've experienced is more often than not, what Jesus does is he will allow breakthrough to happen in a person before breakthrough happens in a place. So he, he will take, he will take uh, the high school captain of the team who is at the rager party doing everything that was wrong, was a complete you know, idiot and made fun of everybody else and was a jerk, and he will save that person's life. He will radically redeem them by the power of his grace, and then he will allow breakthrough to happen in the whole group of people because he did something in one person who was influential seen him do it on sports teams. We've seen him do it at workplaces. We've seen him do it in churches. We've seen him do it all sorts of places. And the truth that you got to know is breakthrough in a person can lead to breakthrough in a place. Now we talk about breakthrough. Man, and everybody, everybody wants breakthrough, right? Amen? Like we all want, God, I want a financial breakthrough. I want a marriage breakthrough. I want a relationship breakthrough. I want a health breakthrough. We all want breakthroughs. But here's the deal. Nobody wants brokenness. We all want breakthrough. Nobody wants brokenness. But here's the deal. If you want Jesus, you will get both. There's just no way around that. And what we see in this story is breakthrough does happen. I believe this man goes and he becomes the first missionary to this Gentile region. And we pick actually back up in Mark 6. Read this verse. I want you to see how God works this story grandly together. In Mark 6, 53 and 56, they sail back. And this is what happens. It says, when they crossed over, they came to the land of the Gennesaret, and they moored on the shore. 
and they got out of the boat. And the people immediately recognized him. Why did they recognize him? Because the formerly demonic man had been around telling everybody about who he was. They had all seen what had happened on the shores. They had all kind of kicked Jesus off the island, so to speak, and said, you get out of here. But then, as everybody's whining and complaining about how much money they lost on pigs, the demoniac goes, hey, man, but listen, y'all remember me, right? You remember how messed up I was? There must have been something about that man. And so word gets out. This guy starts to proclaim about who he is and, and who Jesus is and what Jesus did in his life. It says that he shows up and they recognize him. Look at verse 55. And ran. <laughs> Remember the last time somebody was running on the shores. It was a whole lot scarier. And ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. You want to talk about a far cry from the first time Jesus landed on this shore. See, this is, this is the power and the potential that's wrapped up in a surrendered life to Jesus. And my question is, if Jesus showed up on the shores of your workplace, would there be anybody who would run to him because they recognize him now? If Jesus showed up on the shores of your sports team, if Jesus showed up at the shores back of our church, would anybody even recognize him? I think it's on us to be able to tell the stories about who he is if we want to see that happen. Church, this obviously is one of those stories that leads to one of those unforeseen circumstances. And as we get ready today to go into a time of communion, I don't want the fact that what Jesus did for you on the cross made it possible for you to proclaim his goodness. Because in the same way that he set this man free, he set you free. But in the same way that there were spiritual, heavy, dark forces upon you, or upon him, there are spiritual dark forces that seek to kill, steal, and destroy you, your life, your family's life, and the life of this church. Which is why we need to commune with Jesus. We need to circle back with him. We need to, to pour ourselves out and allow him to pour back in. And that is what the cup of communion represents. So I invite you in this time, I'm going to pray for us and we're going to give you some time wherever you're at to enter into this time of communing with Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your broken body and your blood that was poured out. We thank you for allowing yourself to be treated like the man in the story we read about so that we can be treated like the sons and daughters of the true king that we really are. Father, you are a good and loving God and for those who are far off from you for those who are in bondage for those who are a self-inflicting harm God I pray that in this moment that they would realize that you took all of the wounds all of the pain all of the shame and you took it on your son Jesus and through his power through his perfection we can be made whole we can be washed white we can be at a place where when you look at us you don't see sin you don't see shame you see us washed, spotless, white, and clean because of what your son has done.